Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is a continuation of the discussion we had last week about Christian worship. There's an interplay that always exists on a Sunday morning between the worship and the preaching. Does faithful preaching lead to faithful worship or vice versa? How about both? Our conversation today is with Tim Bailey, Max Carell, and Jody Killingsworth. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. I was going to say that it's not just Lucas that the singing prepares you for the preaching. I think part of what happened with the evolution of, if I can use that word, worship in our church here, mm. was the preaching living le- leading to being prepared for the singing as well. And so if you think about people who are repenting of being worshipped as they're singing in operas, as they're mm. playing in orchestras or ensembles somewhere, and they're they're thinking about all of that worship they receive, and they're convicted by it. So Marcus is convicted. I don't want to stand up there and become a god in God's house. But that didn't come to him simply because at some point Marcus in his heart knew that was wrong. He had instruction in his heart. I even think when you talked about the Baptist churches where they had turned – uh, worship into a what did you say a museum? How did you say that? It wasn't Baptist. Not Baptist, just traditional traditional churches, churches where they turned worship into a museum. Yeah, I think along with John Frame's essay, "The Burden of Change." If you haven't read that, you can Google it and read it. But that's what most Reformed churches today are: are museum pieces, carefully curated, with no life of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that. In some of those places, it's their desire. They want to control. I mean, a lot of I know Baptist churches in their in their histories, they don't want any syncopation. They'll talk about syncopation. Syncopation is the devil, hmm. right? And so, but why? Well, I think for the same reason that standing up in front and leading the, the congregation with a solo or with your guitar is sin to Marcus or to somebody from opera— so it is for these Baptists who've come out of the bars or they come out of these places and they think, I used to tap my foot. And, you know, tapping your foot leads to dancing. And, of course, dancing is wicked. Yeah, I, and so, and so they, they have to find a way to make sure that we, we just completely keep a lid on the tapping of the foot the Holy Spirit. And, and so that we can hold it down and hold it down and hold it down. And the fact is it requires work. And my point to what I started with is I think it requires preaching and pastoral work because the preaching and pastoral work is what instructs people about what they, how they should approach singing and music, how they should give themselves to it, that it, that it actually brings conviction to their heart. Remember years ago in our church, Tim, nobody wanted to stand in the front. They want the choir. The choir wanted to stand at the back of the congregation or up in the balcony behind everybody. So nobody could see them and, and, and and appreciate their appearance. We, we once as a gift to me, it was my birthday, December 15th. And we had uh, Dan Cole, who's the music minister down at First Prison in uh, Columbia, South Carolina for the last 10 or 15 years. And Dan was here, our music director at that time, and Dan put together an octet. And that octet did the Hilliard Ensembles like medieval carols, you know, Jesus Christ the Apple Tree. 
And I didn't know they were doing it. They did it as, as a, a sweet gift to me, actually. And I came in, and I didn't know what they were doing, but I loved that album. And I had listened to it hundreds of times. And I came in, and this octet did that album perfectly. So that was the kind of people we had in our church. And so they didn't want to be up front because they know that in a decadent culture, you worship your artists. And in Bloomington, that's your musicians. And they knew that this, I, I, I tell you, musicians in this church, one of the best we've ever had is Don Wagner, who's now Don Spady, who just lost her husband. Pray for her. And Dawn came to me one time. She had an appointment to go out and to be an intern at the San Francisco Opera. And she said to me, Tim, I want to quit. And I've had this happen a number of times with top drawer musicians. And I said, Dawn, why would you quit? And she said, because the parties that I go to are filthy morally. She said, the rich people are just fond over. And you're just expected to go on with their dirtiness. And she said, but worse than that is the fact that the only way to get ahead is to absolutely be an egomaniac and promote yourself. And I'm so tired of it. And, you know, Jody, you can't see him, but he's sitting here nodding his head. And it's like, why would the Church of Jesus Christ, why would Reformed people not see that their pursuit of all these sophisticated harmonies and having musicians get up and play a trio and show off their great Suzuki technique, you know, as the offertory in the worship and having, you know, the, you know, a Casavant organ, you know, a tracker, you know, all this stuff that is now expected in reformed upper middle class churches is idolatry. I remember my brother, and this is what David and I grew up with. We we grew up with classical music. We grew up with a tracker organ. We, you know, we we know this world. WFMT, WEFM in Chicago, you know, went to Hans Hans Holliger and Segovia concerts and BSO when I was in seminary. Okay. Is that sufficient? And you realize that my brother said to me one time, I've never forgotten, he said, you know, Tim, all the applause at a classical music concert is self-congratulatory. <laughs> and that one statement, I think, just drove me. Put the, the pin in the balloon. Yeah, it was like, okay, I get it. So this is why I get tingles with Bach, <laughs> but I just get the beat with like, you know, uh, cheap who, trick. Yeah, the who or something. <laughs> and the who, you know. So, Jody, what do you think? <laughs> what do I think? <laughs> uh, I go back to what Lucas said, and it reminds me of William Law in a serious call to devout and holy life. Mm -hmm. Where William Law, you know, a Puritan, you know, centuries ago, he's, and it's a great book, classic of devotional literature, Christian. And he says, what you said, which is we have an obligation to sing, that singing is obedience of God. He made us with voices. We are to give our hearts through our voices and music to God, right? Mm -hmm. And then he goes off on how many men say, I don't sing. And of course, 
every Sunday morning in our church. <laughs> you can go around to the different men that think singing is unmanly. They're proud of their wives singing, mm. you know, but it's just unmanly. It's, it's gay. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he says, but you know, the funny thing is these dudes, this is not how he speaks as a Puritan, but I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, the funny thing is these dudes that say they don't sing and they can't sing in worship. He says, you go down to the pub <clears throat> and he says, they get a little bit of alcohol in them and oh boy, can they sing, you know? And so he exposes our hypocrisy. Mm. When a man's heart is stirred, mm. he cannot keep from singing. And what I find, I thought it was interesting, you said that the preaching. That's what I was going to, I think but it's. don't you think preaching here is so helped, aren't you? Yes, it is. It's absolutely helped, but it's like the preaching the preaching helps us so that we can we can shove those demons of the world into the pit so that we can go on before God and and sing to God it's like it's like how did those people from our church who i mean we literally had the the pianos we had two baby grands at the church at the old church house and there were these uh, low-hanging ceilings off to the side, but behind the privacy wall on the platform. And the low-hanging ceilings came out over the platform a distance. And so the entire visual space of the platform where any leadership would be effective to the church was empty during the singing because nobody wanted to be in front. And so even the pianos, and if there were somebody on an instrument accompanying the piano, they stood behind the person on the piano who was in in the darkness of a recess in the back of the building, and they would sing in the balcony. Mm. And it's because they were so afflicted by the demons of their own sins and their own Mm. fears Mm. about it that they couldn't have freedom to come out and, and actually believe that what they could present to God, they could lead others in doing. Well, it drove me crazy. Because these were people, we all loved each other. And they were making a high moral principle out of being hidden. Mm. And I I was like, I don't want you and the musicians hidden. I don't want you hidden. I want you to be looking at me and demanding from me that I worship God with you. And she wouldn't give in. Nobody would give in. They were all, you know, high horse on their high horse about this. And the only way we escaped it, do you remember how we escaped that? The way we escaped it is I finally despaired. And I said, okay, fine. I'm going to preach from the balcony also. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was like she was saying, no, you can't preach from the balcony. I said, well, then you can't sing from the balcony. You know? <laughs> okay, so there's the connection again, right? What is the connection there? Well, I think the connection is I always marvel at musicians at weddings because I call myself pig pen. If you've ever seen Peanuts, I look at my preaching my leadership, everything, and it's pig pen. Musicians are the opposite. They're perfect. And I always marvel at the pressure that there is at a wedding for things to be perfect mm. and that musicians produce. They produce, you know, and I think, and I want to, you know where I'm headed. I think that there, I keep saying what we want is protection from the Holy Spirit. That's what we want. 
And so you produce a perfect museum piece and people can sit there and they don't think that's a perfect museum piece and what a great curator, curator. But what they do think is that's just like a record. That's just like it, it would have been done two centuries ago. That's like worthy of an opera house. That's like, you know, and that's our highest aspiration is to do music as well as the people today who really know music do music. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that it is not in service of the glory of God. It is in service of the glory of us. Mm. And that's what pulpiteering is. And so the parallel between musicians and preachers is you keep talking about the influence of preaching on music. But I have told you, Jody, you know where I'm headed. Again and again, I've said to you, Jody, I never, I never preached until you began to lead worship. And when you and the men began to lead worship, finally I had faith to preach. You know? And it was because the people's worship had lifted me. Mm. And I felt like I had to have as much danger and risk as we had had in our worship. Jody just told us this story a week well, ago. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, my teacher was a character. His name was Christopher Rowland. He's, he has since died of cancer. I became very close with him. He only had four students that he taught. He was a violinist and had formerly been a, a string quartet leader of a very prominent string quartet that was the first Western quartet to go behind the Iron Curtain and perform during communism. And they performed all of Shostakovich's string quartets, all mm. whatever there are. Hmm. Um, and... Anyway, so he had a, had a brilliant career, lots of wonderful stories, and he was a real character. So I just want to tell you one funny thing that two funny things that stick out of my mind about him that you'll get a kick out of. One is he said of Baccarini, he was a he was a composer who was not so so prolific as in continent. <laughs> <laughs> That was funny. <laughs> and then one time he said, yes, Jody, it is sobering to me to realize that when Mozart was my age, he had been dead 10 years already. <laughs> uh, but he, ha he, he observed performers in many settings, and he had a lot of students and of a very high caliber, and he had a lot of high caliber performing friends one of which was a violinist from a string quartet in America who would sometimes come over with his quartet and play in England. And Chris and he would always get together and they, Chris would often attend his concerts. And this, this guy, he said, was one of the best, most natural violinists he'd ever known. He could, he could really just do anything he wanted to do on the violin as, as if it was effortless, just mm. effortless. And be just be, and he could play very well, and he could move people, but not always as well as he thought. In Chris's estimation of this man, and one of the problems was that this man, who could really just do anything he wanted on the violin, there was often the the element of risk was absent from his playing. And one of the things that Chris ended up concluding about this was that it is the, always that element of risk where a musician attempts things that they can't quite achieve. Mm. There's always something that they're searching for mm. just beyond their capability. Mm -hmm. That's really where 
the moving element of a performance mm-hmm. is. It's as if there is such, there's something too wonderful for me to express that I'm trying to say, but I can't quite get it out. And that little, that distance, which you don't want to be too, too disparate. You don't want the, your ability and what you're striving for to be so far apart that you can't even, you can't hear it as music. You don't want the gap to be too big, but you always want there to be a gap as a musician. You want to be striving for something just a little bit beyond what you can do. That's where risk comes in. You're risking something, and that's when you actually stand to move people. When you, it's where you, it's where you put your heart out there for mm-hmm. them. So, what does that have to do with preaching, though? Well, the connections in all of our heads at this table are exploding. I remember reading an essay in uh, in Richard John Newhouse's uh, uh, Rag Magazine journal called First Things. And I forget the name of the guy who was down at Duke, trendy theologian. And he wrote an article that was stupendous. And the article was titled, Preaching as Though We Had Enemies. Mm. And that article expressed something that I'd never heard anybody express before, but that was my entire experience of growing up in evangelicalism and hearing all the wonderful preachers we had, I found them desperately bored mm. to my soul. Sometimes they titillate my intellect. Sometimes they were funny. Sometimes they were interesting. Sometimes they said things I had never thought of, you know, but they never had a point. Mm. And it reminds me of, you know, that famous scene between, you know, John Candy and Steve Martin. <laughs> Steve Martin represents the reformed world, <laughs> you know, in being a prig. Planes, and, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, not liking, you know, John Candy whipping his dirty sock around in his face on the airplane, you know. So you got Pigpen sitting next to Mr. Clean. And at one point, Steve Martin looks at John Candy because John Candy is just a common man, you know, and he's just gotten so sick of John Candy's commonness because he's a marketing executive. He was at a Manhattan firm waiting to get on his point. He looks at John Candy and they just, he explodes at him. And in the middle of that, he says, here's an idea. If you're going to tell a story, have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the audience. Well, that's my experience of evangelical and reformed preaching. Mm. It has no point. Or I should say the point is the glory of the pulpiteer. Mm. No, yeah, I would say it has no, has no edge. There's no point meant to cut mm-hmm. between soul and spirit to the heart. There's no real attempt, finally, to, to plead with people to be reconciled to God at the most yeah. Difficult, sensitive, and true places of their life. Or the fear of God. You know, I'm, I'm, as I was listening to, you, listening to you talking about the musicians, I was thinking about dancing. Now, I wasn't thinking of dancing right now, but no, I was I thinking about, but I was thinking about dancing because sometimes when we're having worship, I want to dance. Mm. And I've been in churches where there were, there, where there was dance and I never could stand it. 
And I was sitting here thinking about um, the reality of men dancing. You know, Tim was talking about men singing in bars and men dancing and what, what takes down the inhibition. And I thought about David dancing, and it never had occurred to me until just now in the conversation. David dancing. David was dancing in the context of the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which demanded incredible slaughter. I mean, yeah. how do you express the holiness of God in, in a way more profound than to move the object of what his representation into your city accompanied by the necessity of, of blood, blood just flowing everywhere. I just imagine David, but I mean, talk about breaking down the inhibitions and preparing himself for the reality of, uh, uh, of something worth dancing about and forgetting himself enough to dance about in the context of knowing God's holiness in that moment as he's walking along or dancing along and just blood on his feet? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You imagine yeah, just... It must have just been, and everyone saw it, and they weren't just a bunch of people thinking, watching a, a, a shoot 'em up uh, you know, watching a, uh, I don't know who the movie star that has the bloodiest movie today. There, there weren't a bunch of people just sitting there watching a shoot 'em up They were people who were in the process of worshiping and celebrating their God. There's an old saying, scriptural, it is God with whom we have to do. It is God. God is the one that we are dealing with. You know, it would be a contemporary way of saying that. And I just grieve in going into worship services and realizing that the man that's preaching, and I'm pretty easy to please when I'm on vacation and stuff. You know, I I am often thankful for what is done, but I can say almost without exception, the preaching today shows itself highly concerned about what the people will think of the sermon and of the preacher. and. Every attempt is made to be pliable according to cultural values on the part of the preacher as a way of winning people to Christ. And it it just, we cannot fear God and man. And what I found with our musicians finally being willing to take their sin, and that's how I think of it. I think of musicians who know their vein. They know that people have a tendency to worship them. They know what the chord progressions mean. And they're willing to go out in front of everyone and demand that we worship God and that we do it zealously, okay? And to me, nothing is more encouraging for me preaching than to see men lead. But I know, but it sounds so pathetic to say lead. Mm. It's so much beyond leadership. A pulpiteer leads. Mm. You know, the 10th Presbyterian, you know, uh, kettle drum drummer leads, you know. The choir director, you know, the flute, the they all lead. But 
they lead you to congratulate yourself that you're at a, such a sophisticated and historic church that you can take part in something where today he's here and tomorrow he's with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm. And it, it just, and so for our musicians to lead us in worship using contemporary instruments, remember Jody picked up a guitar. Uh, Phil Moyer, who had been at 10th and had been prepped to be the next Paul Hillier, you know, he was going to be a doctorate of uh, choral, conducting. choral conducting, and he sits down at a drum set. I mean, it was a <laughs> violation of everything he'd learned at 10th Prez. And I watched these men being willing to be egotistical in their leadership of worship. Now, I know that sounds, I don't know how to explain that. Mm. I know it sounds contrary to what I'm saying. <laughs> But you can't preach, you can't lead in music without having your sin smacking you in your face constantly as you preach and as you lead. Well, that's exactly what David was accused of by his wife, Michael. Mm. She despised him, and I think despised him because she was convinced it was vain. It was all vain. Really? I had Oh, never... look at how you're admired by the people, by particularly the daughters of Jerusalem. <laughs> It's all. I think she hated him because she assumed it was him self, just self fulfillment and vanity and and a performance. I always thought that it was she didn't feel it had the pr proper gravitas for reform I think that, worship. <laughs> I think that's a. Is that are they cheek by jowl? I think are they that the they're. Same issue? I think they're probably both applicable. Uh, that's but she does specifically say, "See how you have." What does she say? Honored or dishonored yourself before the daughters of Israel? I think, I think she's actually psychologically yeah, 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 saying the opposite yeah. of what she really was That's afraid of. Good. Mm -hmm. I think that to lead to, I haven't preached much, but when I do preach, there's a similar struggle that I must go through as when I lead the band or lead worship, and that is, I'm so aware of myself. Mm -hmm unbearably aware of myself and what my motives are, what my sinful desires are, what my limitations are, um, that the struggle is always to, and I think it's a struggle to die to pride. Though it is, I have to say, God help me, help me to nonetheless stand here and say, despite all my sins, as an act of repentance from my sins, because the people must be led, and I'm appointed to do it, to come and to stick my hand up and say, come follow me. Mm -hmm. Come worship the Lord with me. And for that not to, for that not to be a performance, actually what I find as a performer is that that's actually hard to, to bring myself to do in worship. It's hardest to do it there. It's one thing to have cultivated a stage presence mm. for a for an outlet on the stage. It's another thing to use leadership to call people to worship the Lord, to call people to repentance, to call people to faith or obedience. As as one who's appointed to lead, it involves me and my whole person and all that I am and my personality, my gifts, my weaknesses, everything that I am, and I have to be willing in the end to offer all of that to be used of God um, to lead people. But man, the struggle to, I, I remember in the early days, 
finding within myself a strong desire to hide, <laughs> to, to, to diminish. And what I came to conclude is, as the people gave me feedback, the pastoral staff gave me feedback, but the people themselves, I came to realize that's the last thing they need. They need me to be what I don't want to be. They need me to be commanding. They need me to be larger than life. They need me to have variation in my voice as I talk. But it's not performance. It's the people and what they need. Mm. Yeah. It's not about me. It's about them. Mm-hmm. If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, will not has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Hmm. And I mean, that's how we get into the pulpit, isn't it? or else we're in big trouble. Thanks for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and our conversation today was with Tim Bailey, Max Carell, and Jody Killingsworth. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash outofourminds. Cheers! Cheers!